Well, I am here and I am not on vacation. <laughs> Although my work tendencies look a lot like Tim on vacation. So, uh, speaking of work, a um, little story. After my first year in college, I uh, took a summer job working for a textile plant. Uh, family friend had given it the job to me, uh, and it took me all of about 10 minutes to realize I don't like working at a textile plant. Um, but I needed the money, and because it was given to me by a friend, I couldn't quit. Uh, so I was looking around for something to do that I would rather do than working at a textile plant. And so they just bought this brand new pickup truck, uh, a um, manual transmission pickup truck that they had intended to use to do deliveries around town, around Atlanta, where I uh, grew up. And so I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to drive the pickup truck. And uh, so I bribed the guy who drives the pickup truck, and I said, listen, can I do a delivery? And uh, he said, sure, go ahead. And so I, next time we had a delivery, they did deliveries every day, and so I got in the pickup truck. Now, the, the, there were two problems with this plan. One is I didn't know where I was going. This is all pre-GPS. And, and so I wasn't familiar with all the places that a textile tr- company sends their stuff in Atlanta. And the second thing is I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. Um, but I was desperate to get out of the textile plant. And so I waited until nobody was around and I kind of you know, screech the truck, like, out of the parking lot. And if, if I can just get out of here without anybody seeing me driving, then I'm okay. And so, anyway, I, uh, I proceeded to learn how to drive a stick, driving a delivery truck uh, around Atlanta. Um, and so that's what I did all summer. I, that's what I did. I just, I just was always doing delivery. Sometimes I don't even think I had anything in the truck. It's just <laughs> delivering. And... Uh, and the good thing was, is I, I learned a lot about driving around town um, because I would take the longest possible ways to get where I was going. Uh, if there was a detour that I could take, if I was driving along and I saw a road I'd never been on, I'd just say, I'll go that way. And I would just drive and try to figure out how to get where I was supposed to go from wherever I was without looking at the map. And uh, so by the end of the summer, I got really good at, uh, at driving around Atlanta, and I actually got pretty good at driving a stick shift. Now, the problem was that job wasn't the job that I was hired to do. Um, and that's why I wasn't hired back the next summer. The point is, doing the job my way wasn't doing my job. There's a spiritual point to that story. Last week, Tim introduced this idea of the recreated life. We're in a sub-series on the recreated life. <clears throat> As Paul says in verses 22 to 24 of chapter 4, those who are in Jesus are called to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The spiritual life, the recreated life, what is called new life in Christ isn't just an event or an inner experience. It's a life of forward movement, a life of change, a new occupation. It's a life that involves a new spiritual job where we have work to do. We are daily putting off the old and putting on the new and renewing our minds. The challenge is we we want to do this spiritual work of change like I wanted to do the work on my job in the textile plant. We want to do it the way we want to do it. We want to be free to change or not change based on what suits us. But that isn't the new life. That isn't the recreated life in Christ. We're not free to say we have new life and live the old way. We're not free to just feel different without being different. We're not free to not change. The text we're looking at today is where Paul begins to unpack what the new life change looks like. And he'll do this the rest of the way through this letter. My main point today is new life in Jesus requires new life obedience to Jesus. New life in Jesus requires new life obedience to Jesus. And we're going to learn about this new life obedience from verses 25 to 30. So let's look back at that section of what was read here today. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Lord, bless this time together in the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, we're going to see three points. Under this main point, new life in Jesus requires new life obedience to Jesus. Three points we're going to see. New life obedience is specific. New life obedience is repentant. And new life obedience is new kingdom motivated. So point number one, new life obedience is specific. Now right away, as I'm reading, you notice that Paul's getting very specific This kind of comes at you. If you're not prepared for it, 
you've been living in the, in the wonderful theology and implications of, of the letter up to this point, you kind of get caught off guard that he goes right after something. He's very specific. You need to be ready for it. For the first time in this letter, Paul starts telling these people specifically what he wants them to do and not do. So in verse 25, he says, stop lying and speak the truth. Verse 26, he says, stop being angry. Verse 28, he says, stop stealing and get a job. Verse 29, he says, watch your tongue. There's a couple things to note here. First of all, all four of these things that he's saying stop doing, some ways all of them tie into the Ten Commandments. I could take you there and show you, but we don't have time. In other words, there are things that we get comfortable with. There are things that, that are okay to us that are not okay to God, that God takes very seriously. And so we, Paul is pointing out, there are things that you're doing that you're comfortable with that you should not be comfortable with. They're sin. They're serious sin. God treats them as serious sin. They may seem small to us, but they're pretty important to God. All sin matters to God, whether or not it matters to us. Second, these are obviously issues in this church that Paul's addressing or he wouldn't address them. When you look at these things, don't don't be lying. Don't be venting your sinful anger. Stop stealing. Don't be cutting people down. You would think that that wouldn't be happening in the church. Apparently it is. Paul wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't. You see, there's nothing about being in the church itself that cleans up the mess that we want to bring into it. We can bring our mess into the church. Change needs to happen not just out there. It needs to happen in here. It needs to be worked out in here, in the church. Change needs to take place by obedience to Jesus by the church, in the church. So what are we supposed to do with these specific commands? Now you can bet, as, as this letter is being read, which is how it would have happened, the, 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 the pastor would have read this letter to the whole congregation as his message. There are some people sitting in that room who feel like Paul's ratting them out. Whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know about that? Who told you about that? Who's been talking to him? People feel like Paul's kind of getting up in their business. And they don't like it. For us, that can happen the same way too. We can look at these things and we can feel like it's getting up in our business a little too much. What are we supposed to do with these commands? Now, there's a tendency for us to want to sort of say, well, that's just good principles, good principles. Back when we first started as a church, uh, back in Covenant Fellowship, back in the, in the, in the 80s, 
one of the big things people liked back then was let's make Christianity really practical. Let's, let's have practical things we can do as Christians. Let's not just talk about theology. Let's make it practical. Practical. So, so uh, you would see messages in seminars where you'd have like five biblical principles for having a great marriage or seven habits of highly effective Christian courtship or 28 essential ways to parent your children. It was all very helpful, but we learned over time that practical application can sometimes get connected from principles and what the Bible really is calling to in change in the heart. And so that, that can happen. And that isn't a good thing. We don't want to just teach practices. But all through the New Testament, there are specific practices in the Bible. Specific practical obedience. We're not at liberty to treat the commands of Scripture like they're good advice. If they're commands, they're commands. We're not at liberty to live in disobedience to what the Bible clearly calls us to obey. That can seem hard. That can seem uncomfortable. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. I love this quote. There's nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decision. You don't talk about being uncomfortable. Find something in the Bible that you're not doing and take it seriously. Find something in the Bible that you're doing the Bible says don't do and take it seriously. That's uncomfortable. When was the last time you were uncomfortable with a biblical truth because it demanded a decision. It demanded an action from you. Let's take Paul's command regarding anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Now, we always talk about, well, how can you be angry and and not sin? There must be some way that somebody can be angry, but not sin. And I don't know how all that works out, but I do know this. Anybody I know who's ever said, I'm angry and I'm not sinning, is usually self-righteous, which last time I checked is a sin. What Paul's probably referring to is when something unexpectedly provokes us. When we're just cruising along and something happens and, and our initial response is to rise up in, with angry emotions. You know the feeling. It's Going to Target with your two-year-old and having a tantrum on aisle 10 and looking around and realize, I got shopping to do and I, this kid's out of control and everybody's watching. That's being provoked. Or when you have to leave out early in the morning to take a trip and you're running late or going to an appointment and you're running late and you realize your teenager didn't fill the car up with gas like he said he would last night. That'll provoke you. Or your boss comes in at 3 in the afternoon on Friday and dumps something on your desk and says, we've got to get this done today by 5. And you were planning on leaving at 4 early. That'll provoke you. 
Somebody cuts you off on the highway. What rises up? What do you do with that? Paul seems to distinguish between the temptation that flows up in an angry emotion in a moment and a decision or reaction that begins to justify being angry. That's what he's after. Paul says, don't let that happen. You say, but Paul, did you see? He says, don't do it. You say, Paul, but anyone in my situation, don't do it. He says, you say, you don't realize the day that I've had. Paul says, don't do it. You say, isn't this, this isn't the first time this has happened. Don't do it. You say, I have a right. He says, don't do it. Now, that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable when we're faced with a decision. Do I give in to anger or do I not? But that's what we're supposed to experience. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. That's the flesh rising up. The Spirit of God calling us to something else. To put off and to put on the new way of life. See, in that moment, we only care about how good it feels to vent and coddle and chew on anger. That's what feels good. That's what feels right. That's what we want to do. But Paul sees the bigger picture. Paul knows that with anger comes the devil. As one commentator says, the devil loves to lurk around angry people. Specific biblical commands are meant to arrest us when we're giving in to things in the short term that have bad long-term consequences. That's what the commands are there for. They're not going to make us holy. They're not going to prove that we're holy. They're to, to take us in our foolishness when we want to live by the flesh, by the old man, and say, stop, live by the new man. According to the Spirit of God. That's why we need to obey Him. Are you comfortable with anger? That means you're comfortable with the devil messing around in your business. You feel constantly harassed by the enemy. Maybe you need to make an anger connection. Could there be an issue with your anger that gives the devil an opportunity. Maybe what you need is not deliverance, but obedience. Maybe you need to get uncomfortable so you can get free. Number two, new life obedience is repentant. If you ask someone, what does a repentant person look like? Chances are, They talk about somebody who's just sad all the time. That's a repentant person, man. He's miserable. That's repentant. It's like the little girl who told her parents she thought that 
all horses must be Christians. And when they asked why, she said, because they all have long faces. That was freebie. There's this understanding that true Christians are long-faced people who live in constant despair over their sin. If that's your view of repentance, then who would want it? Who would want to be repentant if that's what it's all about? But this new life obedience is actually the true definition of repentance. True biblical repentance is what Paul's describing in those earlier verses. We put off the old man, and we put on the new man, and we renew our minds. That's biblical repentance. It's turning away from the former life of futility and foolishness and toward the new life we've been given in Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer says it this way, Repentance, as we know, is basically not moaning and remorse, but turning and change. A new life of denying self and serving the Savior and King in self's place. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be sorry for sin. But if you truly understand sin and you understand what sin does to God and what it says about God and what it says about us and what it says about the blood of Jesus... And what it says, if we give into it, that we are denying the blood of Jesus. We're saying it, it doesn't matter to me. And, we're, and, and we understand that. We should be grieved over sin. If you don't have experiences from time to time where you're grieved over sin, then you don't really understand the gospel. But being sorry is not repentance. It's just being sorry. Nothing wrong with being sorry. It just isn't repentance. Repentance is when we see clearly what we need to move away from to what we need to move forward to and we get going with the job. That's repentance. Now let's be honest. Let's be honest. I was thinking about this myself. If I gave you a choice of one day being really miserable and sorry about your sin or six months of daily work at change, which would you prefer? I'd take the one day of sorry. Every single time. I can deal with one day of sorry. But that's not repentance. Repentance is change. Sorry isn't change. Sorry is sorry. Change is change. Repentance is a lifestyle devoted to change. As A.W. Pink said, the Christian who has stopped repenting has stopped growing. So it's a totally fair question for you to ask me or for me to ask you, where are you repenting these days? That's a totally fair question in your, in your fellowship group. That's a totally fair question in your marriage. That's a totally fair question among your brothers and sisters. So, where are you repenting of? You're sitting around at Starbucks, you having a cup of coffee, talking about the Flyers, talking about Sixers or not. So, where, where are you repenting of these days? We should be able to have an answer to that question. 
If we really understand what it means to put off the old, put on the new, we should have an answer to that question. I've got an answer right now. If you ask me right now, I'd say I'm repenting of the sin of gluttony. I'm sure there's other things I need to look at, but right now, repentance is focused around gluttony. Now, I may have mentioned this back earlier in the message, maybe back in the fall, but that's okay. I'm still repenting. Now, you may say, now, Andy, you are such a buff depiction of healthy, robust manhood. We just don't see it. I say, that's okay. That's okay. It's not the outer man we're dealing with. It's the inner man. This doesn't have anything to do with what the doctor told me. I didn't, uh, this is not a backhand way of me telling you the doctor is saying you better do something or you're going to be not around for that long. No. This has to do with gluttony because I see how food occupies an idolatrous place in my life. It's where my old man still has sway. When I eat, what I eat, how much I eat, and why I eat depict the life tendency of sensuality and impurity of my old self that's more in control of me than what Paul says here, than true righteousness and holiness that should define my new life. So I'm in a season of specific, active, ongoing repentance. I'm trying to get a deeper biblical conviction on the sin of gluttony. It's not part of my thinking, so I need to renew my mind. That which seems to be okay behavior, I need to see differently as damaging to my soul. I'm doing specific things to confront and oppose my old way of doing things, which happened to be 40, 50 years on. Tough to turn. I'm seeking to live with a vision for godly moderation and self-control and grace-filled enjoyment. I don't want to hate food. I just want to use it rightly. If I look better or I feel better, it's a bonus. It's not the point. The point is my heart before God. What I want is to live in a way that my spiritual appetites hold sway over my fleshly appetites. I have good days. I have good days where I get the end of the day, I thought, that was a good day of repentance, turning away and turning toward. I have bad days where I crammed 12 cookies in at 11.30 at night just because I felt like it. I'm still working at it. That's repentance. Paul's calling for some specific repentance by the Ephesians. Apparently, they've become comfortable with two-faced lies and not loving each other enough to be truthful. They've tolerated sinful anger. They're okay taking what doesn't belong to them. And they've become comfortable gossiping and slandering each other. Frankly, Paul doesn't even bother with whether they feel bad or not. He doesn't say, all these things, you need to feel bad about them. No. He just says, stop. Stop. Don't care what you feel. Repentance doesn't require us to feel anything. It requires us to... See, hear, and obey. That we feel sin is a sign of grace. But it's not the thing we look for in order to decide what we want to do. We need, sometimes we need to repent of the things we enjoy. That we find likable in our lives. 
In each one of those, Paul does call for repentance, for turning from the ways of the world back to the ways of God. Let's look at an example of this in, in what he's saying. Let's look at his, what he says about talk. In verse 29 there you see, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. He tells them to put off corrupting talk. That word corrupting literally means rotten talk. Rotten talk is like rotten fruit. Take you back to my college years. Freshman, first year, uh, in a dorm. Um, I was a soccer player, so we came early. And there was a tradition at the school when you came early for summer practice before the soccer season that a farmer in the area would would bring by uh, watermelons and, and they would give watermelons out to all the athletes who were there early. And so, so one night after a three-day practice, my roommate and I just carved in one of the watermelons and, and ate the watermelon. Totally, totally devoured. It was great. So fast forward about six weeks and fruit flies all over our dorm room. Couldn't get rid of them. Couldn't figure out where they were coming from. People would come into the dorm room and say, man, this place smells. You'd think, well, hey, you know, we're freshman soccer players. That's probably us. <laughs> but it got really bad. And we were, just, we, were, we were just sitting there trying to study. And we're just swatting flies. And we just said, we've got to figure this out. So we just cleaned out the room, cleaned everything out of the room, which freshman takes a while because it was pretty junky. But we couldn't find anything that was causing all the fruit flies. And then my, my, my roommate noticed that in the deep parts of his closet, there was a coat that had fallen, a winter coat that had fallen off a hanger laid on the thing. So he picks it up. As he picks it up, boom, fruit flies by the thousands right in his face. And we're just, we're just like, it, ah! So we don't do so we so we look in there, we reach down and we grab this thing that was at one time a watermelon. I say at one time because when we picked it up, it was just kind of a of a white mass that was just kind of moving. What do we do with this thing? We're freshmen. So you do what a freshman does. You open the window and you just chuck it out. Three stories down to something or someone below. <laughs> Problem solved. What had happened is that we had each been given a watermelon, and back when we were eating it, I thought we were eating my watermelon, he thought we were eating his watermelon, and one of us had put the other one in the closet for future use and forgotten about it. Point is, it doesn't take much rottenness to spoil a room if you let it fester long enough. And that's the picture Paul's painting here. If we allow unwholesome talk, corrupting talk, gossip, slander, complaining to exist in the church, it won't take long for the whole congregation to be affected. It happens, doesn't it? We've all heard about it. Maybe we've all experienced it. Folks, we must put away unwholesome talk. 
There's no need to cry and wail over it. We didn't cry and wail over the lost watermelon. Oh my goodness, we could have eaten this. And look, No, we just chuck it. You have unwholesome talk. You have corrupting talk. You have rotten talk. Don't worry about it. Just chuck it. Just stop. If you did it last night, stop. Don't do it today. Don't do it tomorrow. Don't do it anymore. That's the grace of God. You can. The grace of God is not, well, I really want to obey, but God's going to give me just a little bit of grace so I can just obey maybe. There's always grace to obey. Grace is always greater than sin. There's, if you want to obey, there is grace to obey. You never have to sin. No matter how strong the pattern is in your life, you never have to sin. There's always grace to chuck it out the window. Just obey the word. Just repent. But to what end? Okay, we chuck it out the window. Paul has an alternative. Not just put off, but put on. Words that build up, he says. Words that encourage, that give grace. Because this kind of talk also infects the church. This kind of talk will mark us as God's transformed people. This kind of talk will heal broken hearts. This kind of talk will raise up the downcast. This kind of talk will embolden the timid. This kind of talk will demonstrate to the lost that Jesus Christ is real. And He's here. And He's got power to save. Why? Because they hear the way we talk. They hear how God's people communicate. It said of Winston Churchill that he took the English language and he sent it into battle. We all have language. We send it into battle. The question is, what side is it going in on? Jesus wants us to send it in on the side of the new life. Three, final point, new life obedience is new kingdom motivated. Now, you'll notice in my main point that I said that new life in Jesus requires new life obedience to Jesus. But you're listening to me and you're talking about, you know, this whole message, Annie, you're talking about what Paul requires. Where's the Jesus part? First of all, the words of Scripture are ultimately words, the words of the author of Scripture who is... Jesus. Answers Jesus. Jesus is the author of Scripture. All the words are inspired by the Holy Spirit who was sent by Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. That's what he said he'd do. John, I send. I go away. I send. Who? The Holy Spirit. Why? To convict the world of sin... And righteousness. The Holy Spirit has come. The Word of God is meant to convict us of sin, to get us to turn away from sin and turn toward righteousness. You need, we need to treat what Paul's saying as if Jesus is saying it to us 
personally. I say that because I've heard people say, yeah, Andy, that's good, that's good, but you know, Jesus is telling me this. I feel like Jesus is saying this to me. Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying to you. I don't know what this is, but if it isn't aligned with this, it's not Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. These are commands of of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just give us commands. He gives us reasons to want to obey. He gives us a vision for what this new life is all about. Recreated people want to obey. If you don't really want to obey, ask yourself why. Do you understand what it means to be recreated? Maybe you're not really a new creation. That's a question you need to ask if you don't want to obey Jesus. Recreated people find great joy in obeying. That's a hard one. I said it's uncomfortable, but ultimately we find joy in it. We realize that the greatest joy in my life is obeying my master, Jesus. Recreated people love ultimately obedience because in obedience we most align ourselves with what Jesus has done for us. It was Jesus who left the throne, came down, and lived a life of total obedience to the Father, doing only what the Father told him to do and not doing anything the Father told him, would, did not tell him to do. It's Jesus, who was, as Paul says in Philippians, was obedient even unto death. Death on the cross. Why? So that we might be righteous. Our righteousness is because Jesus was obedient. And so if you want to be like Jesus, obey Jesus. We have a new start. Paul says, a new power, a new purpose, a new self created after the likeness of God, as Paul says up there, in true righteousness and holiness. And so, therefore, we have a desire to obey. And we're part of this new kingdom that has come and is ever spreading. We don't always see the new kingdom. and It doesn't always work the way we think it should work. But it's here and it won't be stopped. What Paul is describing underneath all this, the picture he's painting for these people, is not just personal blessing through obedience, it's life in the new kingdom. Folks, if you want to live in the new kingdom, it looks like this, it doesn't look like this. New created people are part of a new kingdom that Jesus brought. And Jesus is about the new kingdom. If you want to be part of what Jesus is doing, you're part of the new kingdom, and therefore you try to live your life as if it's conforming to the new kingdom. So don't read these commands apart from the new kingdom vision that's hardwired into them. In the new kingdom, there's a new people. We are members with one another, as Paul says. So we want to treat one another with dignity and respect. 
We want truth to reign in our community. We don't want to be false toward one another. We want to be truthful. We want to be honest. We want to speak the truth in love. In the new kingdom, there's a new government. Satan has no place in the new kingdom. The new kingdom's come to throw back the work of Satan. Why give him a place at the table that he doesn't deserve? So don't be angry because Satan doesn't deserve a place in the new kingdom in which we live. When we resist and flanger, we deny a place for Satan as a voice in our new kingdom community. In the new kingdom community, there's a new economy. Rather than trying to get things to flow toward us for our own perceived good, we want to live so that good things flow through us to others. That's the new kingdom economy. It's not, I need, I need, I need, gimme, 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 gimme. It's, I want to live so that good flows out of me toward other people. I'm a conduit of God's blessing. <coughs> and the most important thing we flows out of us is the good news of Jesus Christ. In the new kingdom, there's a new language. It's a language of grace and wisdom and spiritual power. Most significantly, in the new kingdom, the king is here. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, your king is here. That's why Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because one day... The new kingdom will be all that it is. We want to live that way now. We want to live as ones who look for the kingdom in our midst. The ones who promote the kingdom. We should be different, brothers and sisters. We should be obedient. We should live repentantly. Because there's a new kingdom In closing, I want to read a quote from Jonathan Edwards. It gives you a picture of why you want to live in obedience to Jesus. Edwards says this, As you have not made yourself, so you were not made for yourself. You are neither the author nor the end of your own being. Nor is it you that uphold yourself in being, or that provide for yourself, or that are dependent on yourself. There is another that has made you. And preserves you, and provides for you, and on whom you are dependent. And he hath made you for himself. To use the language of Paul, he has remade you. He has recreated you for himself. And for the good of your fellow creatures. And not only for yourself. He has placed before you higher and nobler ends than self. Even the welfare of your fellow men and of society. And of the interests of his kingdom. And for these you ought to labor And live, not only in time, 
but for eternity. So don't do the job of the new life your way. Do the job of the new life God's way. Let's pray.